It's good to be with everyone this morning. It's been encouraging to be with you and worship our God together. You know, I have to wonder uh, the song before the lesson, why Steve has to begin with, we're going to up the tempo on this song a little bit. I can only imagine it has something to do with who's preaching. But we're, we're going to get through this, and uh, hopefully it won't be too long. And hopefully you can hear me when I turn on my microphone. And uh, we'll continue the study that we had in our first hour. It's a blessing to be with you. I want the visitors to know that you're honored guest, and we're certainly thankful for your presence and encouraged. And we ask that you would uh, bring any questions to our attention that you may have. You might not be familiar with the Lord's body and the things that we engaged in this morning or the things that we have professed to believe in, and we'd love to sit down over an open Bible and study those things with you as well. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The living sacrifice that we present with our very physical bodies that corresponds to God's word that has renewed our mind, our inward man, and has therefore transformed the way we act in the body is a very broad concept. It covers every facet of our discipleship. This morning we began a study of the specific aspect of that that still has a very broad concept in modesty and how that it represents both the inward and the outward, that it is a well-ordering of life that is by the renewing of the mind by God's will, but manifest in transformation, which the very word has a connotation of an outward appearance that is observable. Things that we do, things that we say, the way that we use our body and even the clothes that we wear. In fact, we notice that the word that is used for transformed is used in the transfiguration of Jesus and that it wasn't just his skin that was radiant or his hair that was radiant. It was his clothes that even changed. And it's because what we wear actually is representative of our interests, of our opinions, of our thoughts, of our concerns, of our values. It really shows the kind of person we are. And I, I think every one of us understands that you know you think of even a high school setting you can identify the jocks probably by what they wear you can identify the the band people by what they wear or the people over here by what they wear there's just kind of flavors of style that represent what's inside of us but on a deeper scale what we wear is going to manifest our moral values our spiritual values and so this spiritual service, this rational service of the inward man is certainly carried forth in the activity of the body to the degree of what we even put on the body. And we've made that hopefully clear to at least one degree or another this morning so far. I appreciate uh, Aaron's words before the Lord's Supper. Uh, and that's what the first day of the week is all about is, is remembering the death of the Lord and and when we remember the death of the Lord, we need to start on a daily basis too, reflecting on ourselves in that regard because our conduct in the body reflects what we think of that sacrifice. In Hebrews 6, Paul talked about some who had apostatized. 
and warned about that and said that you crucify afresh again for yourselves, the Son of God. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, he talks about willful sin and that you count the blood of the covenant a common thing and you trample underfoot the Son of God by your actions that are in contrast to and rebellion to the truth of God's will. And wouldn't you know it in chapter 12 of Romans, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that present you present your bodies that sacrifice, renewed in your mind and transformed by that will of God. And so the way that we conduct ourselves in this physical body as a spiritual service to God, a spiritual offering to God on a daily basis is representative of what we think about God's grace. What you wear is representative of what you think about God's grace, but also I would suggest to you, it's representative of how you have allowed God's grace to act in your life or how perhaps you have stifled God's grace in your life. In Titus 2, it talks about how the grace of God teaches us. And it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, which involves the fact that along with everything else, our dress is going to have some differences in it as we are set apart and stand apart as God's special purified people from the rest of the world. And so when we're talking about modesty, make no mistake about it, it follows the biblical foundation, as we've talked about earlier, of, of inward emphasis, of inward power, of inward change. The word for the renewing of your mind is renovation. Our, our, our minds have to be torn down and renovated. And so you buy a fixer-upper and you gut that house and you make it new inside. That's what we do as Christians. We come into Christ with the cleansing of our sins, but still some of the baggage to unload of the influence of the world on our minds. And we've got to renew ourselves daily. That would include how we think about our clothing, the inward will manifest itself in an outward way. And so we saw it with modesty and we saw it with the very word modesty that we noted was also translated in chapter three of first Timothy two with the uh, verse two of the elders qualification. They would have good behavior that it is not simply an outward thing, but it is an outward manifestation of what first takes place on the inside. And even the idea of good behavior is outward. It's conduct, activity in the body that is observable and therefore that we can discern and consider if a man is qualified to be an elder. But any man that is qualified to be an elder that is demonstrating good behavior in the body in accordance with God's will, first has an inward orderliness, a modesty of the heart rooted fast in the character that has transpired in that man's life by God's will. And so we saw that modesty is the well-ordering of life that is rooted in the inward man, and it's the inward man that has been made new and is renewed and renovated by the will of God and for a person to take in God's spirit through the word, for that to change that man on the inside, cannot help but burst forth in very obvious and distinctive ways. 
we talk about the distinctiveness of the Lord's church and how we only do whatever God's will says. We don't speak where the Bible doesn't speak and we're, we're silent where the Bible is silent. And, and then when the Bible speaks, we speak where it speaks. So we, we do all in word or deed by the authority of Jesus in the church setting as a, as a congregation. And what that is is an outward manifestation of treasuring and reverencing and fearing God's word in the heart. And that's why you've chosen to be a part of this congregation because of the truth that we live by. But so it is on an individual level. If I treasure God's word, if, if I'm allowing God's word to change the way I think and the values that I possess and the anticipations and goals of my life, then it will be reflected in not only the actions I take with my body, but what I put on my body insofar as clothing is concerned. And so we boil down really modesty to two great parts in our life, just like the greatest commandment and the second commandment that is like it. Modest people, and I'm not talking about those who just dress, modest people inwardly are those who are living their life in pursuit of God's favor. And so a modest person at work will not withhold the truth of the created body of a person or the way marriage is represented by God's will, that it's between a man and woman. So a modest person, when convicted by God's will, is not going to kind of tell a lie and fall in line with the immodesty and the unscriptural ideas that are being propagated and pressed on us on a daily basis. And so a modest person is willing to make sacrifice in that kind of way. Maybe that's a a really loose and, and bad illustration, but a, a person that is changed inwardly and is, is seeking God's favor will do something that puts him in bad light in the community with people who are worldly and don't have those same values. And so when we live in a physical world full of physical values and physical representations of those values, a modest Christian will not dress in a way that boasts of wealth and and status and seeks the attention of those without, nor will they dress to emphasize and highlight a sex appeal in a world that is overwhelmed with sexual thoughts and motivations. That's not the value of a Christian. And so the dress will be not in pursuit of being in with the crowd, but in pursuit of God's favor. And we saw that in 1 Peter chapter 3 as well as 1 Timothy chapter 2 with the women who dress and act and, and carry themselves in a chaste manner in godly fear to, to pursue God's favor and win their husbands who are unbelievers over to God. They couldn't do that if they were simply seeking to be in with the world. But then we noted that if we're pursuing God's favor, just like if we're loving God, we're going to be pursuing the best interests of our fellow man, especially our brethren, and that includes the way we dress as well. And so in 1 Timothy chapter Thessalonians, rather chapter 4, the Apostle Paul gives attention to the will of God for them to abound more and more in sexual purity. And he's not saying that you simply need to not have sex outside of marriage, abstain from sexual immorality. That's true. But he's saying that a Christian safeguards himself, abounds more and more in that where the thoughts and the activities and the interactions that would escalate to where it would boil over into that sin of sexual immorality 
are not present in his life. And in that way, not only are we eluding or, or evading, rather defrauding our brother or defrauding our fellow man through the activity of fornication or specifically adultery, where God is the avenger of all such by abstaining from the sexual act itself, but from all that would lead up to it. We would not want to defraud a brother by being an instrument that places impure thoughts in that person's mind. We'll talk a little bit more about that as well. And so we're pursuing the interests of man. We're living in such a way, acting in such a way, dressing in such a way that protects ourselves from sexual impurity and protects others from sexual impurity insofar as our power is concerned. Obviously, they're going to be judged for their own character as well. But that raises a question as we understand it's a matter of the inward man being reflected and manifested in an outward way is in pertaining to apparel and that which reflects a modest inward man. Is there a standard of that outward manifestation or is it just left up to the subjective mind? Is an objective biblical pattern for modest apparel a necessary reality? And then if it is, can we demonstrate it by the word of God? I would affirm that we can. But before we get to some of that, I want us to just consider some of these things because there are Christians who believe that modesty manifests in outward ways, though it is primarily an inward thing, which I would agree it's, it's all about the inward man, but that will manifest in outward ways. But then some Christians suggest that that is up to the individual and how that modesty will be projected. And I would suggest to you that there is a logical inconsistency with that. And there would be an impossibility of trying to encourage others to conform to Christ's standard if Christ's standard left subjectivity to modesty. How would you know if you're dressing modestly? And I have known that there are preachers who have balked at this idea of drawing lines. And, and, and what they do is they say, well, it's about the inward man. So if you're just thinking about where the line is drawn, then you're missing the point. Well, I would suggest to you that that's painting with a broad brush because I believe there are honest and, and modestly seeking, sincere Christians who ask about whether there's a line, not because they're not seeing the point of modesty, and they're only focused on the outward like a Pharisee would be, but because they're sincerely interested in and concerned about not going beyond God's standard. And so we shouldn't paint with a broad brush. If you're asking for a line, you're missing the point. Well, maybe they get the point and they want to know whether they're dressing modestly. In fact, if they're asking the question most likely in their sincerity, they are seeking to live modestly and dress modestly they're seeking obedience to God's standard and holiness of the flesh, but they don't know what it looks like and they don't know if they're achieving that goal. And so God wants us to think logically. He doesn't want us to just murky the waters. And that's in the very language of 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says that in like manner also women adorn themselves in modest apparel. The word adorn is the Greek word cosmeo in the verb form. Modest apparel, modest is the Greek word cosmios. 
And the root word for that verb and that adjective is the noun cosmos. And it's where we get our word cosmos from. Vine defines cosmos, a harmonious arrangement or order, then adornment, decoration. It came to denote the world or the universe as that which is divinely arranged. And so we use the word cosmos, which ironically, even those who are naturalists use the word cosmos to describe the universe. And they use that word because it means order. It means there is a uniformity and an arrangement to this that they're observing. And so it begs the question, what does order mean? Well, you ever heard of the TV show Law and Order? There's order that must be uh, pursued and protected and enforced, but it is done so through law. And so where there's order, there's law. And what people are observing in the universe where they draw the conclusion that there is arrangement, it is well-ordered, is law. And they'll refer to it as the, thermo, the, the law of thermodynamics, the, the natural laws, the law of gravity that was observed. Everything that goes up must come down as long as you're on this earth. And so there are observable laws and the order is there because God has spoken those laws into existence. And by that, we believe. But he says that you must dress, order yourself, adorn yourself in orderly apparel, which leads us to the logical conclusion that there must be a standard or a law that gives us that order to conform to. Loose word studies comments on the word. We looked at this in the first hour. By the use of this word, Paul indicates that the adornment of the Christian woman should be one in which order, not disorder, obtains. In other words, the apparel must be congruous with, fitting to, and consistent with what she is called a child of God. Remember in Romans the 8th chapter how the Apostle Paul demonstrated how they could know they have that confidence as God's children and therefore have hope? He said the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God's Spirit dictates, our spirit submits, and we are children of God. And here the idea is that this dress, this apparel, is in such an order that is congruous with the inner modesty of one who is ordered by Christ's law, by the Spirit-revealed Word of God. And so notice that as well. He speaks about how this modest apparel is that which is proper for women making a claim to godliness. And you notice he says, with good works, but he's not saying that the apparel is the good works. He's saying that's their emphasis, but make no mistake about it. Adorn yourself in modest apparel, catastole apparel, is speaking about physical clothing. And so he's saying that you're doing all of these good works. You're walking in the spirit. You're doing the good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Ephesians 2 and verse 10. But your dress needs to be in agreement with that, which means that it's in reverence towards God before God. That's what godliness is. Now, notice in chapter three of first Timothy, he mentions in verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. We know the mystery has been revealed and what he's talking about is the gospel. It's no longer a mystery. It's been unveiled. But when you see mystery in the New Testament, it's talking about the gospel of Christ. And so essentially he's saying that great is the gospel of godliness. And it's using a metonymy, a figure of speech. He's saying the effect 
of the mystery is godliness. Ergo, it is the mystery of godliness. And once you know it there in chapter 4 and in verse 6, he tells Timothy, if you instruct the brethren in these things, things concerning the truth and uh, unveiling and revealing the error for what it is by the light of truth, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having a promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. And so there is the mystery that produces godliness, the gospel. He's nourished in the words of faith and good doctrine that he's carefully followed. He's instructed in and nourished in godliness. And so the very fact that he says this dress must be in agreement with your profession and claim to godliness tells me that there is a standard that we must abide by. You know, some will suggest that, well, he was dealing with a matter of culture. This is how they were to dress a matter of culture. But I want to tell you that this modest dress is completely opposite of what the culture dictated. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul left him in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there is the great temple of Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. And part of the service of that false god was of a sexual nature. And there were priestesses, prophetesses that were prostitutes. And they dressed like prostitutes in service of that God. That was the culture that Timothy is going to be preaching in. And so this idea that Paul is just talking about conforming to culture is completely foreign from the very context. It's counter-cultural, just like we saw in Romans 12 and verse 2, not conforming to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So is an objective biblical pattern for modest apparel and necessary reality? I think it is. How can you know you're dressing modestly if there is not a standard to appeal to? And I think when we start thinking about apparel and modesty, along with the correspondence to those words that he uses that we'll look at in a moment, that the covering of nakedness is necessarily implied in that instruction for modest apparel. Do you understand that clothing is not to look good? I don't have any problem with dressing in style. I wouldn't be wearing what I'm wearing if I thought it looked bad this morning. You may think it still does, but that's just the way I am. And so there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the purpose of my clothing. We put our clothing on each morning, whether we know it or not, because it's meant to cover our bodies. There's some people that have just decided, well, I don't even care about it, and they don't care what they wear. That's certainly true. But clothing, just like anything else, has a beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that in the beginning, when male and female were created, they were naked and not ashamed. And then when they disobeyed God and they ate of the fruit of the tree of the garden that God said, you shall not eat, their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And notice in verse 10, God said, where are you? Verse nine. And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid and because I was naked and hid myself. What did he do when he realized the shame of his nakedness? He made clothes for himself. They were insufficient. Because it says that he was still naked and God would make them clothes later on. But nakedness is necessarily implied as a necessity to be covered in modest apparel because clothing was invented by God to cover fully nakedness. But with that, I think we need to understand something about nakedness. 
Nakedness does not necessitate full nudity. That is complete bare before others. But it sometimes refers to a partial nakedness. In James 2 and verse 15, it speaks of insufficient clothing in regard to those who are in need of a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food. And you remember in John 21, when Jesus is approaching his disciples for that final moment in John's gospel, and they're out on the boat fishing, it says that the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. Removed it is a translation of a word that means naked, stripped, or bare. And the New King James Version says he had removed it. The King James Version says for he was naked. And the New American Standard Bible says that he was stripped. He wasn't nude, but he was naked. He did not have on full clothing as it pertains to what we read in the Scripture. And so in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3, you have um, God giving them that full clothing. I want us to understand this as well before we go forward. When we think about it, modest dress necessitating that nakedness is covered, this concept of covering nakedness with clothing is not suspended by any particular event. And there are Christians who act like it is. And so I understand I need to cover my nakedness with my clothing, but when there's a wedding, I can dress a little less. Or, or athletic events that require my uniform to, to be lesser clothing and therefore beyond the standard of God than what I would normally wear. Or we're on vacation, or we're swimming, or, or it's hot, or this is a formal event. This is about your body that was, from the beginning, specified to be needing coverage from nakedness. And so this is not some cultural thing. It's not some matter of an event, but this is about covering nakedness at all times. There's no event which takes precedent over the need to cover our nakedness. I want us to notice as well what he says there, that they dress with modest apparel with propriety. It's the Greek word eidos, and it means a sense of shame, modesty, Vine says. R.C. Trench comments on eidos and says it's an innate moral repugnance to the doing of a dishonorable act. And so it has this sense of shame where I'm not willing to go beyond what God limits me. I, I don't want to be involved in a shameful activity. And with dress, I don't want to be dressed in a way which is shameful or that exposes shame. There in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25, they were naked and unashamed. And then they tried to hide their nakedness, though they failed. There was shame involved in nakedness. And Nahum 3 in verse 5, it says, Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face and show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. And so nakedness exposed and shame are synonymous. They're, they're parallel there. In Revelation 16 and verse 15, that imagery is used. I'm coming as a thief, the Lord says. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And so you have this word dressed with propriety, which means a sense of shame that would cover up that shame and involving our dress and shame is the idea of nakedness. And so a failure to cover what God defines as nakedness that is shameful, it actually reflects an immodest character across the board. Now, you may be ignorant about that, but that doesn't mean that there's not immodesty involved. Maybe someone's rebelling against it. You cannot claim to be modest and dress immodestly. 
And so that can be fixed. The grace of God can transform us. And I know that there are sincere individuals that are mistaken, but they've got to dress modestly in order to be modest. And so the nakedness must be covered. And so as nakedness is equated with shame and that we're dressed with a sense of shame to be modest means that if we can see what nakedness is, we can see what modest apparel is. Modest apparel that is without shame, that covers what is shameful, that is ordered and correct before God's eyes. What is nakedness according to our eternal God? Notice in Exodus chapter 28, Exodus chapter 28, the context is about the priesthood, but we know that's been nailed to the cross. We're not talking about being priests, though we are spiritually we don't have a kind of dress code like they did in regard to the holy garments and things that were consecrated for that service. And so when we're not talking about we need to be exactly as the priests of Levi were, there is an essential and eternal component of mankind that is demonstrated here in Exodus 28 and verse 42. It says, you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. Nakedness back then is nakedness now. And Genesis was the beginning of things, the beginning of the human body, the beginning of clothing to cover up human nakedness. That was before the law of Moses. And who would argue that nakedness today in the 21st century is different than nakedness was back then when God created man with the same kind of body we have today? And so this is not about being priests according to the order of of Levi and, and those kinds of things, but it's about nakedness. And they were made linen trousers for the express purpose of covering their nakedness. And I want us to notice what he defines that nakedness as. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to the holy place that they do not incur iniquity and die. You know, just after this, in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu offered profane fire before the Lord, and they died. But the fire was profane because not anything inherently, but because God did not specify that fire. He wanted other fire. Here, it's not this ceremonial thing. It's specifically something that is innate within the human body. He's talking about the section of the body that is naked and must be covered lest you incur iniquity and die. And he says that the uncovered thigh is naked. It must reach from the waist to the thighs. That phrase, from the waist to the thighs, is interesting. To the is the translation of the Hebrew ad. It's a preposition. It means as far as, or even to, or up to. It may speak of time, until, or while. But here it's obviously speaking of space and coverage. As far as, even to, up to the thigh. That same phrase, that same word add is used in number six and in verse four. When speaking of the Nazarites, it says all the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Add up to even to Colin Dulwich explains he was not to eat of anything prepared from the vine, from the kernels, even to the husk. That is not the smallest quantity of the fruit of the vine. And so that phrase is not from the hip to the first part of the thigh or half of the thigh or the portion of the thigh, but it would include waist and thigh, hip and thigh, the entire thigh. That's what he's saying there. And so you might ask, 
But what would be the thigh? Well, the Greek word or Hebrew word rather translated into thigh there is yarik. Strong says it's from an unused root, meaning to be soft, the thigh. And then in parentheses, he says from its fleshy softness. Someone might say, what is the fleshy softness of the thigh? He's not articulating a specific part of the thigh. And so we need to understand how to use our our Bible study tools. When he says that it's from an unused root, meaning to be soft, he's saying that the Hebrew language chose this word that has a root about being soft to describe the thigh, the whole thigh. It's just the thigh is the definition of yarek. And the reason that word was used is because it had a connotation of soft and the thigh is soft. That's the point. That's how language works. In fact, in his lexicon, Jacinius's Hebrew uh, lexicon, Galdi lexicon says it means the thigh. That's the definition. But then he says, perhaps so-called from softness, see the root. And so he's not saying the fleshy softness of the thigh, but he's saying the thigh because it has fleshy softness. And so when it says it shall cover from the waist or the hip to the thigh, it's articulating the entire thigh and it needs to be covered. That part that ranges between the hip and the joint of the knee is nakedness and needs to be covered. In Isaiah 47 in verse two, Isaiah speaks about the destruction of Babylon and judgment on Babylon. He says, take the millstones and grind mill, remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Your shame shall be seen and I will take vengeance. I will not arbitrate with a man. There, the uncovering of the nakedness with the uncovering of the thigh is synonymous with shame being seen as we noticed before. He uses a different word though here. It's the Hebrew word sock and it just means leg or thigh, ground driver and bricks says, Strong says it means the leg, and in parentheses he says lower as a runner, and so context would determine it. But I want us to understand that he's associating that word that means leg, translated as such in the New American Standard Bible, with nakedness. And we saw that what part of the leg that was covered to cover nakedness in Exodus 28 was the thigh. The word specifically means thigh. And so corresponding to that, Isaiah 47, the nakedness of the leg is the thigh. That's what he's saying there. And so he uses a different word, but he's saying the same thing. Someone might wonder, though, but didn't he say they need to remove their veil? Well, what's the difference between the shame in removing the veil and the shame in uncovering the nakedness of the thigh? Remember in 1 Corinthians 11, when the Apostle Paul dealt with the veil, and he says, we have no such custom. When Adam and Eve were clothed by God, they were given clothing, but it does not say they were given a veil. In our culture, a veil is not a part of customary modesty. If it were, we need to wear it. And so there's a distinction there. In that culture, the veil being removed would be shameful. But in all cultures, because it is an unwavering and consistent truth inherent within our human created nature, nakedness revealed is shameful. In Isaiah 20 and in verse 3 also, it says there concerning the shame of Egypt and what Isaiah would do. My servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia. Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, uh, naked and barefoot with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And so the uncovered thigh is nakedness. The uncovered buttocks is nakedness. It's the Hebrew word seta, which means the seat of the person here. It is the buttocks. Someone says, 
Why do we need to talk about that? That's obvious. Well, is it obvious today? Is it obvious today that the uncovered buttocks is nakedness and is shameful? I think that you don't have to go far to see that that's not the case. When you look at the bathing suits that are worn today and the shorts even that are worn today, it's obvious that there is no shame or sense of shame in those people. And so the covered thigh is modest dress. The covered buttocks is modest dress. But we notice the very beginning of clothing in Genesis. And I want us to go back there in Genesis chapter 3 because you notice there in verse 10, it says that Adam, after he had already made a covering for himself and for Eve, that was the Greek word hagora or shagora, which essentially was a girdle or a loin covering, a belt or a loin cloth, and so it essentially covered the genitals, they still hid themselves because they knew that they were uh, exposing their shame and nakedness. It says there in verse 10, I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. But then you notice that in verse 21, it tells us what God did about their shame that was still uncovered. As for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And so just before we even think about the word, I want us to think about the necessary implications to this. They were naked and they made coverings and they were still naked. God made them coverings. And who would know what nakedness is and what exactly needs to be covered beyond God's knowledge? And so they were still naked and God gave them clothing specifically there to cover their nakedness. He clothed them fully, adequately. He did not make a mistake. He did not provide too little. And so with that, we understand whatever that tunic covered constitutes nakedness. Now, we already saw in Exodus that the thigh is naked. It needs to be covered. So the tunic had to have covered the thigh, gone down to the knee. We understand that the buttocks is nakedness. The tunic had to have covered the buttocks. Brown, Driver, and Briggs says that a tunic, katana is the Hebrew word, is an undergarment, a long shirt-like garment, usually of linen. And we talk about Joseph's coat of many colors. Well, it's the same word and it's not a coat as we would think about it, like a suit coat. It's it's a shirt-like garment, a long shirt-like garment. And so we're talking about one piece of material and you put on like a shirt, you think of a t-shirt, but it was long. It went down at least to the knees. Now, even if we suggest that these these scholars are just talking about and their excavations and the reliefs that they've seen and the historical artifacts, that that's what they saw represented in those images, that, that a tunic it usually went down to the knees. I don't even have to know that to know that it did by God's standard because we saw that covering the thigh covered nakedness. And so if God is clothing them to cover their nakedness and he makes a tunic, I don't even need that definition to know it was covering their thigh. And if I put it on as a shirt, it's, it's one piece. It's hanging down from my shoulders as a shirt does, hangs on my shoulders, and it goes down to the knee. You see, brethren, God wants us, and I've got more. Don't worry back there. We're going to cut it off. I'll pick up next week. Didn't even think that would happen, but of course it does. God wants us to use our minds. And so this is not a matter of, you know, an index where God says, nakedness, clothing, and you've got all this list of clothes that we can wear and can't wear. The modest heart, the godly heart, the heart that loves God is not looking for a loophole, is not looking for an excuse, is not looking to murky the waters 
He's looking for the truth. And see, God only wants those who really want him. And isn't that what we see in the parable of the sower? All the seed is sown on various parts of the ground. And Jesus speaks in parables so that those who really want him and really want God are separated from those who are just acting the part. And so if we really want to dress modestly, if we really are modest in our hearts, we're going to use sound logic, which is what this is. Clothing was to cover nakedness. We saw that the thigh is naked, the buttocks are naked. And he gave them one piece of clothing, a long shirt-like garment that went from the shoulder down to the knees. Zondervan's Pictorial Bible Dictionary says that the garment cuts in it usually had long sleeves and extended down to the ankles when worn by a dress coat and was held in place by a girdle. But hardworking men, slaves and prisoners wore them more abbreviated, sometimes even to their knees and without sleeves. Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary says men and women wore tunics made of linen and wool that often hung from the neck to the knees and the ankles. And so I want us to notice something else, too, that what he made for Eve, he made for Adam. And so I know that in our culture and really across the world and in many parts of the world, a woman without a shirt is different than a man without a shirt. Not to God, though. There's no distinction with God. I understand the anatomy is different but not the area that God calls naked. He didn't say that he gave Eve a tunic and he gave Adam something else. He gave them both tunics to cover their nakedness. And one more thing before we dismiss and have an invitation, we pick up with the study next week, Lord willing. I want us to understand that the tunic itself, the, the style, the material, all that kind of stuff, that's not the pattern. What we demonstrated in Genesis 3 is not the exact style of clothing we're to wear, but the area of our body that is to be covered. That's what the tunic demonstrates. I'm not suggesting that we all get a square leather, sew it together and cut out armholes, and that's what we wear. That's basically what a tunic was. That's not the pattern. The pattern is nakedness. What is nakedness? And logically speaking, that's all we've done is define what nakedness is by seeing what God gave them to clothe and cover their nakedness. We're not binding some style that is not a part of our culture. What we're seeing is what God is necessarily showing us by necessary conclusion and implication, what nakedness is and therefore what must be covered. Someone says, though, you know, you use the Old Testament. That's been nailed to the cross. Well, again, we're not binding the Old Testament. In fact, Genesis 3 is recording events that happened before the law of Moses. It's not about the law of Moses. It's like marriage. In Matthew 19, the Jews questioned Jesus about a prescription of Moses under the law in Deuteronomy 24. But he said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So he goes back to the beginning, what preceded Moses's law, but also what goes all the way through Moses's law to the 21st century. Marriage was an unchanging thing. It's always been between man and woman. That's what nakedness is. It's never changed. This is not the law of Moses. This is an unchanging moral truth and principle. You might remember in Romans, the first chapter, when there's a discussion about sexual immorality, that the Apostle Paul speaks about the degradation of morality in the Gentiles, that they go against nature in the sexual activity of homosexuality. That's the concept of what was made at the beginning that continued through the law of Moses 
into the law of Christ and even is now. It's against nature now. And so when God, by necessary implication, defines the part of the body which is naked, who's to suggest that nakedness ever changed? That's irrational and it's inconsistent with what we see in Scripture. You can advance to the song for the invitation. We need to be honest with ourselves about what we're seeking to project. If we are modest in our hearts truly and we truly want to live separate from what God sees as shameful and what he sees as shameful is nakedness, then I'm going to dress according to the pattern that he has established within his word. And we're going to do it with joy because we get to stand before God accepted and pure and beloved. There are other implications to this. Implications, namely, about the connection between modest apparel human sexuality and marriage that must be understood. And Lord willing, we'll talk about that uh, at a separate time next week. I know that we haven't talked about the things that we must do in order to be saved, but we would be remiss if we left this place today without offering you an invitation to become a child of God. Jesus died on the cross as we just remembered and shed his blood so that you can be saved. As much as we are deserving of death eternally, Jesus died so that we didn't have to. And the way that we come into contact with and therefore the benefits of his death, the Bible tells us, is by being immersed in water into Christ for the remission of sins. We can assist you with that that this afternoon. If you have obeyed the gospel and fallen short in some sense or fashion or you need the prayers of the saints here, any strength from us, we encourage you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing.